Welcome to the Addiction Solution Podcast brought to you by Baldwin Research Institute and the Freedom Model. Addiction experts Mark Sheeran, Stephen Slate, and me, Michelle Dunbar, take on some of the most controversial topics surrounding substance use, addiction, and treatment. If there are topics you'd like to hear us discuss, books you'd like us to review, or specific questions you'd like answered, you can email us at podcast at thefreedommodel.org. That's podcast at thefreedommodel.org. Hi, Mark Sheeran, Stephen Slate, and me, Michelle Dunbar, are here today, and we're just going to discuss probably my favorite section of the Freedom Model text, questioning drug effects and the license to misbehave. These topics are covered in later chapters of the book. I think that's 17 through 20. People have all kinds of beliefs about the powers of substances. To make them more outgoing and funny, relax them, to pick them up when they're down. And many people will allow drunk or high people to behave in ways they would never allow someone who's sober. They do this because of what's called the license to misbehave. People blame substances for bad behavior when high or drunk, but do substances make you more bold and daring? Do they make you an arrogant jerk or abusive? Do they have the power to make you relax and turn a bad mood into a good one? It turns out they really don't. These beliefs are cultural and not at all rooted in the pharmacology of the substance itself. Let me ask you, Mark, when you were partying all those years ago, did you have some beliefs about alcohol and what it did for you? Well, absolutely I did. I, uh, I grew up in a family that was steeped in treatment in AA, so there was a huge expectancy when I started drinking when I was 12. It was actually my 12th birthday. Um, that alcohol would affect me in some way. Uh, and what I was seeking at that point in my life is what I got, and that is I wanted peace. I was a very intense kid. Um, I worried a lot. I, uh, I was depressed. I was a deep thinker, and my mind raced. I struggled with sleep. Um, and so for me, the expectancy was I want alcohol to loosen me up, make me more social, um, provide peace. See how I said that? I wanted it to provide me peace. And so when I drank, I said, oh my God, I feel peaceful. You know, I feel happy for the first time in many years. Um, and so I, I, I got confused, really. I wasn't, it wasn't the booze doing it for me. It was me expecting that the booze would do it for me. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, it, I definitely uh, had some expectancies with, with alcohol and drugs. And, and can you remember a time when you maybe were kind of a jerk and you were given a pass because you were drunk? Oh, yeah. I'm sure there were many. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, absolutely. I can remember, um, well, I, I can remember mooning a bunch of people at the state fair <laughs> up on top of a building and... Uh, <laughs> In front of hundreds of people, I can remember directing traffic uh, in a brownout, and um, you know, making a, a complete ass of myself. Um, I, I remember all kinds of things, every spectrum, from being violent. Uh, just about every fistfight I got into, I was under the influence. Um, so yeah, yeah. But then at other times, uh, it brought me peace and made me calm. So. Uh, so it couldn't have been the, the pharmacology. You know, a drug doesn't affect you two different ways that are opposites. So we'll get into that later, but yeah, yeah. So Steve, what about heroin? What, what did you think heroin would do for you? I mean, really, I just liked the high. 
right? That that was the ultimate thing. Um, was just to feel this high. Um, and then there gets to be other reasons where, um, you know, I had a girlfriend uh, that I was fighting with a lot, you know, and really, yeah, a lot of it was about the drugs. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, true. Um, yeah, but it's one of those weird things that I was just talking to. A girl at the retreat yesterday who who had the same experience where it's like, well, I was doing all these drugs when we met, and you knew that. You <laughs> yeah, did some of them with fair. me, and now all of a sudden you don't want me to do them. Um, but I would fight with her a lot, and then it would be like anger. Oh, I just get so angry, I need to get high. Yeah, you know, yeah. and you think that that it takes it away, that it takes away oh, yeah. anger. That that would have been my biggest thing. And, and then as I get more into the rehab system, I start to believe. Um, that I need it for my depression and my anxiety. Because, yeah. of course, then I got the diagnoses of uh, generalized anxiety disorder, social anxiety disorder, uh, bipolar, chronic depression. Which is funny because you're you're a stand-up comic. I mean, <laughs> you, you know. <laughs> a, I, that's actually like a common diagnosis of, of comedians is, <laughs> is depression, believe yeah. it or not. It's, yeah. You know, a lot of times they... That to be funny, they will make fun of themselves, and so you see that. Um, and they also, a lot of them have substance use problems too. Yeah. <laughs> now, I it became that kind of all-purpose thing to me, but I wasn't. That was never how it began, and I was never fully there. It for me, you know, I just got to say, I, I didn't really fully buy into that side of things. I liked getting high. Well, here's but here's the difference between you and me and Michelle, and that is we got treatment before we drank. Yes, through our family. So our belief so was already set up. Our belief was it was all queued up for us. Yep. Yeah. That we were going to, you know, ex- seek emotional relief. You guys yes. were already being brought to meetings at a young age. Yes. Right? Exactly. Just like as part of was it for Al Anon, or you were there for the. We went to AA meetings too. My father brought us to AA meetings. Yeah, I was brought because all my siblings were either in rehab or were in the program. And so you were being trained in seeing alcohol as an (laughs) all-purpose... Elixir. Elixir. Magical elixir. You guys were trained in that. And drugs. drugs. It did make it very attractive when you're a teenager. Like, I remember thinking, when can I do this? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know? Yeah, I made it. It was like on my 12th birthday. I'm gonna... Yeah, I I was 12 too. And I... It's the common age, and you know I'm gonna go steal the vodka, and and, yeah. uh, and I just remember really what you get from a drug is just some sort of warm sensation. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you were to look at it, what actually is it has nothing to do with your mind, it has to do with just a sensation, and then all your expectancy of what you think it's going to provide for you, it provides. For it you, sure does. You know? it's like this canvas that you can yeah. paint anything you want onto. You know, and I do often ask people like, well, what is the high? Can you explain that? Yeah. What, you know, and at best it's like it's some kind of bodily sensation. Sensation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but as far as like these contradictions and stuff go, the one that gets me all the time is where people talk on the one hand about, oh, the euphoria. <laughs> oh, it's just so euphoric. The warm blanket of euphoria. Warm, yeah. And then, well, I take drum, drugs to numb myself. To numb all the pain. I hate to say. I'm sorry. I'm saying it in a mocking voice. But I just, <laughs> I said those things at some point too. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But like, 
How is euphoria the best sensation in the world and <laughs> numbness? No, yeah. lack of, literal Which lack, is a lack of, of sensation. It's a, it's a shutting down of how you feel. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Absolutely. How do people believe that a drug does both of those Pharmacologically, things? Pharmacologically. Yes. That's the, the yeah. yeah. How, how can it have that? Uh, you know, if you take an antibiotic, it doesn't, you know, make the disease and <laughs> cure it. Gives you strep throat <laughs> and takes it away. <laughs> right, right, right. I, I remember, oh, go ahead. Michelle. Well, I can honestly say the only time, because I've had to be on opiates, I dabbled with them when I was young and, and using drugs. And then over time, you know, I, I can remember I had a, I was getting an emergency C-section and I got a, what they call the dermorph spinal and I was in massive amounts of pain at the moment that I got it and it was the only time that I've used opiates and because they shoot it right into your spine it's morphine right into your spine yeah. and the I can say it's the only time that it felt like it instantly took away my pain I want I wouldn't say it was euphoric but it was like water washed over me and my pain was gone and the pain went from being totally intense physically to none at all, to wow. this numbing, yeah. and and I and I remember thinking, oh, if this is what it feels like for people when they use heroin, I guess I get it. But then it occurred to me that the physical amount of pain I was <laughs> in was so intense yeah. that I'm like, how many people that use heroin are in that kind of intense physical pain when they shoot up? Like. Right. Otherwise, mostly not. Mostly yeah. not. Otherwise, when I would use opiates, I wouldn't get that at all. Right. And I know it's pharmacologically no different. Yeah, exactly. It's the same compound. So yeah. it all comes down to what you believe you're going to get out of that drug. And how you interpret what you feel. Because as Mark said, it's just kind of like warmth. It, that was it's it. It's just kind of, yeah. kind of some kind of sensation. If it's a downer, like an opioid... Um, it's literally slowing down neurotransmission, so that is a that's a that's it psychoactive effect in the brain. If it if if it's a an upper, it's speeding up neurotransmission. So it's going to make your brain feel different. It's going to make yeah. your thinking feel a little quicker or, or, or slower. Yeah, right. But as far but but that's I want to talk about yeah, that. What is when, that? when and that's what I was seeking. You see, when I drank because of my background in treatment, because I was steeped in all of that, first, I wanted, I looked for, I want peace. I want my mind to slow down because I was a worrier. And so I knew that alcohol provided some sort of peace for people. That's what I heard. And really what it did was it slowed down my mind because I couldn't process thoughts as quickly so it, it performed that function but it didn't perform that function it just slowed down the processing the process my thoughts were still the same I was still just as worried right mm -hmm. I was still going to have to deal with the same things I had to deal with nothing changed it was just slower but I interpreted it as peace yeah so that's the part when you take something that is a physical effect a speed of processing within your brain tissue and then you interpret it and give it meaning of something greater you you've literally given it meaning that is not real mm -hmm. and uh so so that i guess that's my point well i want to i want to talk a little bit about steve brought something into the freedom model um you found it the drug set and setting 
and and that these things you know all come together to form how people interpret you know getting drunk or high and that they really are relative depending on these three factors so can you explain that yeah well you know first of all I'd say like you guys already knew about drugs since <laughs> we, we did it it you know so I didn't bring it along <laughs> well but yeah it's it's in all these books about that about addiction and it's always just kind of like well here's an odd thing yeah, <laughs> yeah. somehow if people drink in one setting they get this effect and if they drink in this other setting they get that effect you know and I think one you brought up when we talked about it is if you would drink around your high school buddies yeah. You were a jackass. Yes. And then when you would drink around the college guys, the older guys than you, you'd have to hold your liquor. So yeah. you would behave yeah. differently. It was actually it was actually my buddy's fathers. They they were ex-Vietnam vets and they drank and they had a certain code, right? Yeah. You didn't act like an ass. Yeah. You just didn't or or you'd get beat up. Or so just, you weren't mooning 400 people when you were with your buddies down. Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> but I, I was drinking just as much, if not more, because when you drank with the big boys, mm-hmm. right, you, you had to show that you could drink half a bottle of liquor at 14 years old. Um, so, you know, and hold your liquor, not throw up. So you had to meter it. You had to figure all this out while being totally hammered. But then in that same party... We'd get on our dirt bikes, we'd ride out into the woods or something, we'd act like jackasses again, <laughs> yeah. right? Right? So yeah. so there's this idea that you lose control or, and look at, I've even had blackouts yeah. for days where I've been on a real wicked bender and people did not even know I was drunk. Yeah. You know, when, if you Oh get, yeah, that, that happens a lot too. Yeah. yeah. Right? And that's supposedly, oh, you're out of control. It's just yeah. animalistic things are happening. And Absolutely a not. lot of people in blackouts, they behave completely normally. Yeah. Um, I, I was thinking, you know, I would be with my buddies stoned in my car, you know, and we would get pulled over by the police. And one minute we're all laughing and goofy. Acting ridiculous. The next minute you can hold it together. Oh, yeah. Or you do that when you go home high. And mom and dad are in the living room, yep. and you got to walk by them, right? Like, Put know, in the eye drops yeah. before you, you go, change, and you're like, "Hey, what's up?" Yeah, you yeah. change your demeanor you sure a little do. bit. Sure How do. is it we're able to do that if the drug pharmacologically change, changes the mind? Exactly, right? And it, and it doesn't. So, I I thought with all of that information that was out there, I thought, wow, you know, at the same time as I'm having people come to me saying. Steve, I want to quit drinking. I hate it, but I need it for stress. Mm-hmm. I'm so stressed out. I have four kids. I drink. I have to bring them to 50 games. I'm fighting with my husband. I need to drive. And then I just have to have that wine for stress. Yeah. And I started to think about all of this drug set setting stuff. And that, you know, um, you know, I don't think alcohol really takes away stress and uh, we can show that to people right. we could actually yeah. teach them that now when i went through the retreat in 2002 you guys sort of did that you didn't have a formal lesson in the book but when people would talk about that there was kind of two things that would come up would be like well did your problems go away well i would say two or three things right and people would be like no Right, and you're at best temporarily. Right, I felt like I was distracted. 
Yeah. Right. If you were to call you it, know, it would be a distraction. Sort of, yeah. yeah. You'd have those discussions with people. And sometimes you would just straight up mock us about it. <laughs> <laughs> are you kidding? Look how stressed out you are in your life now. <laughs> That's right. right. Have you yeah, been less stressed since you started drinking yeah. like this? Right. No. It just piles up. Yeah, and, and to, to show the person that it's bringing on more stress. Yeah. But what I wanted to do with this information is, is to, re- well, first, to dig into it. I looked up everything I could about stress and alcohol and what, is it, what does it really do. And other drugs. Yeah. And, and other drugs, yeah. Um, well, of course, we looked into a whole bunch of stuff. But, yeah. but that was one of the biggest ones for me because I was seeing so many people with that. They say, I need it for stress. And... What we were able to show is that it doesn't even really relieve the stress temporarily because yeah. as many times as you see somebody, they say they're experiencing stress relief, they can get more sad, talk about their problems more. They call that crying in your beer. Yeah. Uh, bartenders can tell you people do it all the time. They come yeah. into the bar, they want to forget about their problem, and then they just yammer on about it for hours, yeah. right? Um, so anyways, what was in the literature was this idea of the drug set setting model of drug effects. And it goes like this. Um, there, when people experience something from a drug, it's not just from the drug. It's one part pharmacology, the drug's action on the brain. It's another part, your mindset, the expectancies, like you said before, that you come into the experience with or, or how you decide to think while you're using the drug. And then the third part is uh, the setting, which is in the environment that you're in. And that conveys some information to us about what is allowable and acceptable behavior here, you know, et cetera. I mean, famously, when they tested um, LSD, when the government tested it long ago, they did it in psych wards and <laughs> people are sitting there under fluorescent lights in a barren room and like, take this. We think it might make you go crazy. Let's see what happens. And, then, <laughs> and of course, you know, and so they used to say that LSD makes you psychotic well, right. because that was right. That was the, the study. That was the whole drug set and setting. They, yeah. they brought that upon Expe- yeah. people, Expe- right? Yeah. They, 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 by power of suggestion. Yeah. They made people crazy with and LSD. setting. I mean, big time. Yeah, and yeah. so then, yeah, and so then when they, you know, when you know all the hippies did it at, at, <laughs> at Harvard and said, "Let's have an experience where we expand our minds." Well, they had a mind expanding experience, right? Right. They had a totally different thing going on. So this goes back to Timothy Leary, but it, and, and it goes back to serious re- researchers like Norman Zinberg, yeah, um, and different people throughout you know, this this 20th century has been, even it goes back to Howard Becker, the sociologist, been, they've been picking apart and unraveling drug effects while the rest of the world is obsessed with crack is super addictive, alcohol makes people violent. This, you know, whatever is being said, these guys have been picking it apart and it's just kind of been an academic thing. Yeah, I wanted to bring it to to, 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 a, our, to our readers, our guests, and make it useful because it is useful information. It is. It is. Because it, is. it gets rid of the mythology. It does. And I think, I think when we're talking to people, like even if I'm talking to somebody on the phone, I, I had a long talk with a woman who, whose husband beats her when he's drinking. Mm-hmm. You know, he's very violent and abusive, but he's such a nice man when he's not drinking. And, and I said, well, does he beat you every time he drinks? And she said, well, no, I mean, sometimes we have a lot of fun. 
And, and I'm like, so on one day, the same amount of alcohol will make him a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And then on a different day, the same amount of alcohol makes him a violent, abusive jerk. Right. So, so how is it the alcohol that's doing this? And most people realize, well, it obviously can't be. Exactly. That's it. But it's, this is the part where this is a, um, it's a fairy tale or myth that we want to believe because we love our husband. (laughs) And And we want to stay in our marriage. We want to stay in our marriage. And so the alcohol can get the blame. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but, but when you put it that way, hey, sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. I've run into that many times too. A guy tells me about how awful he is to his wife on Saturdays when he drinks. Um, and I did put this in the appendix of the book, one of these cases. And then, but he drinks with his business, uh, you oh, know, people, right. people that he's selling to, business associates at dinners in the in the week. And uh, with them, he doesn't yeah. fight. He's not nasty. But he, and he believed in his heart of hearts that the alcohol was making him nasty with his wife. Right. And as we started to talk about his entire drinking pattern, I had to say, well, why doesn't it make you nasty the rest of the time? And he really, he was like, oh, crap. Yeah. You're yeah. right. I I want to be this way to my yeah. life. I'm making this happen. Yeah. For personal reasons. Yeah. Well, let's, let's move on to, I really want to talk a, a little bit about... Um, placebo effect and active placebos we talk about that in the book and you know we can even we even get into a little bit about psychiatric medications or you know do do, do antidepressants have the power to make somebody happier um you know and what they found in the research was maybe not so much um that that just like with these substances you may feel a, a a small effect in your brain um, but that may cue you to feel differently. And with an active placebo, what that is, is it when, when somebody's doing, when they're doing research and they give you, somebody gets the drug and then somebody gets placebo, well, they make sure the placebo has the same side effects as the drug. So when they do that, especially with these like antidepressants, they find that, that people in the active placebo group experience, I think it was even more, um, they, they responded that, yeah, this is working for They me. responded equally as well when they had a drug, that a placebo that gave them side effects. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and what originally sparked the researchers to, to try this out was that they were just seeing in general in, in, in placebo studies with antidepressants that the more side effects somebody got from an antidepressant... Yes. Yeah. The more of an effect, the more higher of a success rate it seemed to have. You know, yeah. you're more like, and, and it's it because tells you the belief. Because it's, it's telling you this drug is doing something to me. Ooh, good. I'm on the real drug. That means I'm going to get undepressed. And there's an optimism that, that kicks in with that. Now, the reason we brought that into the book is because when we talk about this drug set setting thing and, and we say, hey, alcohol doesn't really take away your stress. It doesn't really turn you into an angry jerk and whatever. People are say, well, you're saying that drugs and alcohol don't do anything. Right. They don't right? have an effect. Well, no, they, they do. 
And part of their significance, the drug significance in the drug set setting is that it does make you yes. feel different. Yes. yes, Physically, it makes you feel different. Yes. You start to feel that and you go, aha, I have my stress reliever that, working yeah, now. Yeah, that's the cue. That's the cue. That's, the that's cue. your active placebo. Yes. That's your active placebo. <laughs> yes. You know, and but we have to train ourselves over time to believe this. You know, you guys were trained. You had the idea implanted. You know, but it's just as you turn more and more to a drug for comfort, like, then the second yeah. you taste it, even. Here's I mean, for me, it would be like the second I was coming around the mountain to Holyoke, Massachusetts, where I was going to buy my drugs, and I could see that city in the distance, I would feel so much stress would just go away. I knew I was about to get my heroin. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. Well, here's, here's what's so sad about what's happening. I think about my experience of being um, sort of pushed into the whole AA model from a young age and being taught all this mythology, right? It's really, it's, I, wanna, I want the listeners to hear that. It's mythology. It's, it's ideas, right? And that booze is going to do this for me or to me. And um, what's really sad is now with all these drug awareness campaigns, it's so detrimental. And I know this is going to be controversial, but I would never promote a drug awareness campaign that says that drugs have these powers. I mean, that's crazy. We're teaching the kids that if they drink for the first time, what to expect. Yeah. Okay. And then, yeah. And, yeah, then, and then, it's, then it's a self-fulfilling nightmare. It's addicting because it's so pleasurable. Yeah. And then that, that you'll never find anything more pleasurable. I just had somebody close to me go through a period of real difficulty in their life. Um, you know, she's, she's 17 years old. And she's been getting high and drinking and, and carrying on. We had a conversation. She's, and she's just at the beginning of this, uh, this whole cycle. And she's like, I'm just really intense. And I could relate with this person. You know, I'm just really intense. And I just, I just wanted to say, screw it. I just wanted to have some time off. And so I'd get drunk. And, and, uh, and I said, well, there's probably a more you know, productive way of doing this. You're you're an all or nothing person. You have this all or nothing idea of doing things. And why don't you just learn to compromise? Right? You don't have to go and yeah. get hammered for stress relief. Because it doesn't, obviously. And she's like, it doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't. I mean, pile, my problems are piling up and I feel worse. I, I feel worse physically. I It's not solving the issue. And because we caught her early, she was able to very quickly say, Okay, I'm going to try a different strategy because she wasn't infected with all these other ideas. You know, the problem with young people today is they're infected with all of these ideas. Then they experiment. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And before you know it, you have what's called an addict. Yeah. Right. And, and even that's. Uh, and, and the addict, the, the best thing, we, I think one of the best ways I can define an addict, even though we don't really believe in the addict. Right, right. We don't believe in a powerless person. But they are a person who believes that they need yes. the substance. And the more you stack on all of these benefits, amazing you know, powers of drugs and get people to buy into it, the more they feel at least a want and then eventually a need for the substance, right? And so that's why that's the significance of taking on and questioning drug effects is because we do see drug and alcohol use as a functional 
behavior in this program. It's not just an addiction right. because drugs have hijacked your brain. Right. It's that you have reasons that you desire drugs. Which takes reasoning. Which takes reasoning. Right. And if you started to chop down that list of reasons and say, oh, wait a minute, it's really not helping with my stress. Oh, wait a minute, it's not the best feeling in the world. It's okay. Oh, wait a minute, I don't need it to be right. have lowered inhibitions and dance when I want to dance, talk to the girl I want to talk to, whatever that people think. Um, once you, you chop down that list of reasons, you're left with pretty much, okay, it, it gives a sensation that I might interpret as pleasurable, but it is not my all-purpose medication. Well, then it becomes a lot easier to let go, right? We, we talk so much about how irrational it is that people will pay such a high price for drug use. You know, they'll lose their family and friends and job and all of these things for drugs. But at the same time, we talk about, oh, they need it for self-medication. Yeah, it's, it's like, well, yeah, okay, so it's pretty damn important to that person. So by presenting this information in the book uh, and in the retreats, we are trying to appeal to people's intellect and reason and to say, you can rethink what you're getting out of this and um, and you may not be as attracted to it anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's what it comes down to is, and, and that's, that's what we try to explain to family members when they call and that this person has very personal reasons for using this. They didn't, they didn't plan on crashing their car. They didn't go into it thinking, I, you know, I want to lose my job. Um, what they went into it thinking was getting high is important to me because of these reasons. So by challenging what they think they're getting, it kind of it kind of wrecks it in a way it, it it takes away the mystique of substance use so that now you know 30 years down the road after i you know overcame the problem and and you know i'm experiencing massive stress in my life you know people you know people are always worried oh you're an addict you're gonna the minute you experience <laughs> some stress you're gonna you're gonna go off the, yeah you're triggered you're gonna go off the deep end well once you realize oh wow it doesn't have the power to solve any of that or even help me to relieve it for a little while it, it, it's you know we like the book is a bit of a party pooper that well, way <laughs> well it's funny it's funny because when we use the when we use the word pharmacologically what does it do it became really apparent to me because the analogy of the of the antibiotic became so true yeah you know an antibiotic doesn't cause strep throat and cause a healing effect right it can't because pharmacologically it's in the bloodstream and it does something very reliable alcohol drugs are completely open-ended it's it, it's totally the effect is totally at the mercy of what the person expects and wants yep and except, believes except for processing speed of your brain tissue you know yeah how, how pre so if you're if you're drunk it's going to be slower if you're on coke it's going to be quicker that's it. Yeah, that's that's, pretty pretty much that's it. pharmacologically. Right? If we were to sum up what yeah. every single person reliably gets from cocaine, is that there's a lot more blood flow going to the brain and body. Yeah, right. So it speeds things up. Yeah, alcohol the opposite. Heroin the opposite. You know. So so that's it. I mean, that's what it reliably pharmacologically provides. It does not. And here's an important important point. And I want you to, the listeners to hear this. It does not change or alter or manipulate the content of your thoughts. Your thoughts are yours. 
and you wholly own them, you create them, and pharmacologically, you can't change a metaphysical thought with a physical agent. So it's it's impossible logically. Yeah, let me give an example. It's like if I get a big hospital bill and oh crap, I have to pay this off and I'm all stressed about that. Will taking a drink make me believe that I don't have a big hospital bill to pay off? <laughs> will, it t- will it take that's away... That's awesome. I suppose if you drink enough, maybe you'll forget for a little while. But... Yeah, well, that's the, that's the point. The The only way it does is if you're literally passed out. Passed out. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's the only way. Yeah, I did figure out when you're stressed, if you can manage to get yourself to sleep, for that time that you're sleeping... It's gone. <laughs> you have no stress because you're sleeping. Yeah. And, you know, now I also want the listeners to know here's the difference with the Freedom Model and other programs is other programs are going to um, say that, uh, okay, well, let's work really let's work on coming up with alternative coping strategies oh, for you. Yeah, yeah. Get you this kind of stress uh, relieving technique. Let's get you in this therapy for your depression. Now, we want to say we're fine with people doing all that stuff. But when in the context of helping somebody with a drug or alcohol use problem, you say, okay, well, we better get you these really great stress solutions. What are, your, what are you saying? You're saying that alcohol is a pretty good stress solution. Right. We need a better one. Right. And we're saying here, it's not a solution for stress. And once you understand that, you can just let go of the alcohol. Then we say, do whatever you want to do about your stress. Yeah. Then, but like, then, let's yeah. learn this fact first. You don't need to turn to something that is in fact giving you the physical symptoms of stress, which are increased blood pressure and heart rate. <laughs> right. <laughs> to deal with stress when it doesn't even take it away. Like you're making things worse. Understand that. You can let go of that. Then you can do whatever you want. Um, and... There's. I heard something recently. They said, "Don't, don't uh, prepare the road for the child. Prepare the child for the road." Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it, and the normal, st- the the unfortunately, the popular strategy has been to be like, "Let me create a little stress-free life. That way, I'll never be triggered into drinking." Oh, it's, and, that's so detrimental. Yeah. That's you know, so detrimental. Let me get all my tools at my disposal to deal with my stress. All of this, which again, I'm not going to criticize having a way to deal with stress, but when you do it this way, then the implication is, if I can't properly deal with the stress, I will turn to alcohol. Yeah, because I still think it's it's a solution. Yeah, that's right. It's an endless cycle. Yeah, Yeah. that's an endless trap. You can nip it. it. Yes, right in the bud by learning that it is not a solution. I have had a lot of stress. We've had a lot of stress over the past couple of years. Yeah. And never once does it has it occurred to me to drink for the stress or anger that I'm going through. No. Or any such thing. I just know yeah. it will not make anything better. It no. is the last thing that comes to mind for me. And it isn't even an escape. You know, really quickly what... Um, <laughs> Oh yeah, escape. Uh, uh, yeah, a close a close family member of mine. I won't, I won't give up who it is. Not a drinker. Um, he and his girlfriend decided. Neither of them are drinkers, and they decided they were going to have a night. They bought a couple different kinds of alcohol. They went on YouTube. They looked how to mix drinks. They were like, "We're gonna we're gonna see what this is all about." 
right? So they, and they were both in good moods. They weren't looking to it to do anything for them. So I said, well, how did that go for you? I mean, they stayed home, so they weren't driving. And and he goes, well, I learned that I can drink a lot, like an enormous amount. Like I had probably six shots in a couple hours plus a, a beer or a couple beers. And, and I, you know, I've been out with my friends and they've drank a lot less and they acted ridiculous. And we were just sitting home and I was like, I'm not really sure how I'm supposed to be. And the same with her. She's like, well, I didn't really, I, there was one thing I liked and then I didn't really like the other stuff, but I should have been, she goes, I just ended up getting really sleepy and ended up going to bed early. <laughs> so here they were, you know, getting drunk together and it literally meant nothing meant they, nothing to them. So they kind of went into it with no, no expectations. Yes. I think that they I think they thought it was going to be relieve their boredom. Well, they thought something was going to happen to yeah, them. Yeah, they waited. They, they're like, "Okay, alcohol, do your thing. Do your thing. Yeah. Make uh, me sexy and make <laughs> us have great sex and do all these things." And and she was like, "I, I just got I just got really sleepy and <laughs> And I went to bed. And I went to bed. <laughs> and then I felt kind of crappy the next day. And I thought, that wasn't all that great, was it? Should there something else have happened? So they asked me, they're like, was that what it was like for you? And I'm like, well, no. but <laughs> Because of our ex- expectancies. Of our, yeah, our yeah. expectancies growing up. Yeah. So so I think that we'll probably have to be done for today because we're we're trying to keep these a little bit shorter for you folks. Um, chapter 20, we didn't really get to chapter 20. Chapter 20 is about pleasure. And I'm just going to, you know, leave you with this, that pleasure is always completely subjective. And while I don't argue that people do find pleasure in getting high, of course they do, and getting drunk in certain ways, not everybody does. Um, and that's, most people don't. Most people don't, and that's the other part of it. I, um, and which is a problem that young people are being taught in their drug education classes. Yeah, it's just and, ridiculous. You know that that you know they should like this, and thankfully, um, yeah. They, you know, the message when they say heroin is so great, don't even try it. Don't once. even try it once. Or cocaine, you're just hooked. For is life. there a better way to make somebody want to try heroin? <laughs> Than that, <laughs> tell you it worked for me. <laughs> I mean, and it's just okay. It's yes. it's it's really fun when it's new, and then it's, it's just boring. Well, yeah, I mean, it gets boring eventually. Think about this: there's a billboard on yeah. the east end of Amsterdam, on both that, ends, and both ends now that equates um, getting a hydrocodone for a broken bone with shooting heroin. Yeah, yeah. They say you wouldn't give your kids heroin. I, that, that, yeah. that billboard yes. yeah, yeah. I, I've been meaning to take a picture of it yeah, yeah. It's, it's silly it's so crazy so hurtful um, so you know go figure that there are more kids you know moving to it's an heroin that there were 10 years ago yeah. um, you know awareness campaigns work <laughs> they do yeah well thank you everyone for listening today and we'll be back in a couple weeks Thank you for listening to the Addiction Solution Podcast brought to you by the Freedom Model. You can send your questions, comments, or topics you'd like us to talk about to podcast at thefreedommodel.org. If you enjoyed this show, please share it with your friends. If you are struggling or you know someone who is, the Freedom Model can help. Call 888-424-2626 or go to thefreedommodel.org to see which option may be right for you. If you're specifically seeking a residential retreat, 
you can check out SoberForever.net. Once again, that's SoberForever.net. Thank you to everyone who helps make this podcast happen. Editing is done by Christopher Dunbar and Daniel Hidalgo. Thank you to our incredible staff at Baldwin Research Institute and the Freedom Model Retreats, without whom none of this would be possible.